everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest is Carla L. Reyes. She's an assistant professor of law at SMU Dedman School of Law. She was appointed the chair of the Texas Working Group on Blockchain Matters in September 2021. The group is charged with considering policy priorities related to blockchain technology in Texas. Professor Reyes currently serves as the research director for the Uniform Law Commission's Technology Committee, an associate research director of the Permanent Editorial Board of the Uniform Commercial Code, an expert member of the Unidroid Working Group on Private Law and Digital Assets, and an expert member of the Unidroid Work Group on Best Practices for Effective Enforcement. She also contributed to the Uniform Law Commission and American Law Institute 2022 Amendments to the Uniform Commercial Code. So as you can see, she's very busy, but I'm grateful for her spending the time to speak with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I thought we could start with your Genesis block. And you've been a blockchain lawyer since before most people and probably since before it was even considered a thing since I believe 2011. Could you walk through your introduction to the space? Yeah. So I was a pretty new attorney at Perkins Coie in Seattle. I graduated law school in 2009. And the first year was, it was during the financial crisis. So the first year I was deferred and I worked with volunteer advocates for immigrant justice. So then by 2010, I was actually at Perkins. That first year I did a bunch of like data security and privacy stuff, some in the litigation side, some of the transactional side, just trying to figure out where I fit. And ultimately I started working for partner Dax Hansen out of the Seattle office. And he's an electronic financial services guy. And pretty early on, he decided that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency was going to be a thing and that we should start studying up on it. And we did. And we had a lot of early clients. And then we, I mean, it's the secret now. So then we were on the Ripple memo, the infamous one, perhaps. And then 2013 FinCEN guidance came out and we were overwhelmed with work. And I never looked back. That's pretty much what I've been doing since then. So from like 2011 to 2013, it was sprinkled in work and with other stuff, more traditional electronic financial services stuff. <laughs> Sounds funny to say. And then after the 2013 FinCEN guidance, we did all Bitcoin and blockchain all the time. And what did it look like from 2011 to 2013? How did things change? And what were some memorable moments? Or are there any stories that you can share about that time? Things that changed was a growing, I mean, it took a lot to understand the technology. And I think that time was a lot of just learning and really grateful to early clients at that time to spend time educating us. In particular, a shout out to Patrick Merck, who gave us a lot of education during that period. And then I think the big stories were around the 2013 FinCEN guidance. And we had calls with Treasury trying to figure out like what it meant and the way that they used words that nobody understood in the context has really shaped my thinking about law and the way law is developed in this space ever since. I still write on the issues of law and language and how the law just hasn't seemed to figure out what this technology is and how it works. And so the laws we've created 
keep falling short of things that are useful. And that all stems from that early interaction with that FinCEN guidance. And on that point, I'm excited to talk about the 2022 UCC amendments and the idea of control and benefit and all these. But before we do that, you were an associate at Perkins Coie for about six years before you, you became a professor. Could we discuss that transition, what you learned during those six years? So I learned so much during those six years and everything, right? No offense to what I do now, but like you graduate law school, you don't really know how to practice law. And so I I mean, I learned so much in those six years. And then I continued to work for Perkins sort of part-time while I was at Stetson. The Stetson, my first academic job was a fellowship of sorts where they teach you to be a law professor because clearly you don't learn that either in law school. And so over those two years, I still worked for Perkins a bit, but I learned everything there, everything from contract drafting to the ins and outs of discovery and due diligence and what it looks like to be an advocate. And I'm really learning that advocacy isn't just something you do in court, that transactional lawyers are advocates too. It just looks very different. And that I think as a law professor is insight that students need to hear more often because there's often this divide like, well, if I'm an advocate, I'm a litigator. And if I don't want to be an advocate, then I'm a transactional attorney, but that's like not a thing. If you're going to be a lawyer, you're an advocate. The reason for the transition was I was increasingly interested in answering questions about the law and blockchain technology that clients were not interested in paying for. So I wanted the freedom to write, to research and write on those issues. But because I was interested in the research side, I didn't want to make the jump to teaching without having a sense of whether I was any good at it. And so I was an adjunct professor at Northwest University. It was an undergrad institution teaching political science classes for a couple of years before I made the jump, just to see what it was like to work with students, to see how terrible the student evaluations were going to be. I didn't want to be someone who subjected students to like really awful classes, but then just did research on the side. So since that went pretty well and I found I really enjoyed working with students, then that was the second part that I needed to sort of make the jump. Yeah. And how did your practice change after the FinCEN guidance came out? Because I think that was the first time a line in the sand was drawn with regards to crypto. Besides, I believe the tax might have come first. I know at least in Canada, tax came first. But how did the practice change and what did it look like? What were the types of clients that you were seeing come through the door? Because that was before the ICO boom, before I think a lot of what we know as the space today. Yeah, so early clients were still, you know, little startups experimenting with things. And then the funny thing is immediately after the guidance, it wasn't cryptocurrency companies that came to us initially. It was big gaming companies. So who had in-game virtual currency that they were like, wait, are we money transmitters now? Right? Because nobody understood what the words of the guidance meant. So they weren't sure who it applied to. So the initial clients that paid for a bunch of that research around the 2013 guidance didn't come from cryptocurrency land. But over time, I'd say after the 2013 guidance, you started to see more bigger players, more institutional players get interested in blockchain technology and cryptocurrency applications. So it started to change from like very little clients to more you know, sort of longstanding traditional ones. And But we still had projects that ranged everything from like product launch to you know, very targeted research questions, the whole thing. But it was a, a lot, a lot around money transmission in the early days. I can imagine there wasn't as much of a discussion around securities right. considerations because you didn't have all these certain tokens and projects popping up. What was your personal thoughts on it? I mean, you're working in the space, you're spending a lot of time educating yourself on it. Did your opinion of what 
Bitcoin is change over time? Did you grasp it pretty quickly? Like, what do you think about it now? So many questions I want to ask you, but I'd love to just have you walk through how your thought process around this area has changed. It took me a while to ramp up to understand the tech and to trust it, right? So Dax was really great about encouraging us, almost requiring his associates to use the technology. So we've had wallets and owned crypto from early days, but only because I had to. So back then I was a debt saddled law, recent law graduate. And I was like, I don't have the funds to just use on this speculative thing. I still don't quite understand. And so even though it was like $10 or something ridiculously cheap at the time, I didn't buy a bunch of it. Then that certainly has changed over time to my dismay (laughs) because it doesn't cost $10 anymore. But at the beginning, you know, I was very distrustful. And then as I understood more and more about the technology and could trust my own understanding of it, that has changed significantly. I think that's probably the biggest thing that has changed significantly. That and being able to critically assess the differences across protocols and across products, which I could not do back then. They didn't have the capacity. And just on that point, when you mention critically assess different projects, I mean, there's a few levels to that, right? There's the code itself. There's what happens off chain with the founders. There's the team that could hold back a certain amount of tokens. Is there anything that you do in that analysis that might be different than what most people do or something that you've learned or insight that you could share with people who are doing that in the space but might not be aware of or things that you've even just found helpful as a checklist? Well, certainly over time, I've learned that there are those different components. So when you first come to the space, you don't know that's a thing, that there's the code and the players behind it and understanding the different mechanisms that creators might use to try and profit from their work. And I don't blame them for trying to profit from their work. It's how you make money, right? But understanding that maybe there's a pre-mine or all of that, you didn't know, you don't know that at first. And so just knowing for the, in the first instance that you should read the white paper, that you should go investigate the people behind the white paper and see what their credentials are, maybe where their allegiances lie, what projects they've been involved in before, understanding that just because, in particular, understanding that just because a project says they um, are blockchain-based doesn't necessarily mean that the project, the product, or the services are decentralized, right? Trying to figure out where the centralized pieces of their project, product, or services are, if they exist, is a very important piece of it as well. That, And then I still don't, so I can figure out some of the code, but not all of it. And so for that, I often just go to friends and ask. So when I get to a point where I'm at my the end, the limit of my understanding, because I really was a political science major, then I, I have technical friends that I go and say, okay, look, what is this doing? I need to understand this before I feel comfortable with this particular instantiation of the technology. I think that's one key. Don't feel bad about asking questions, right? And especially even your point earlier about trusting the code. And if you're not looking at it yourself, how can you really trust what it is that it operates the way it says it does? And even unfortunately, that the I think the difficult part is even if you have people who are experts who walk you through it and explain it and can review it, there's always a chance that something is missed and there's bugs in the code. And I think part of the reason why Bitcoins continue to grow is that the longer it survives without any issue, the more valuable it becomes and the more we can trust that it operates the way it says it will. Yeah. Yep. So 
On that point, in terms of promoting stability and predictability, the UCC amendments in 2022 addressed two problems in the industry, and you highlighted these it, for those that lent against Bitcoin as collateral. So the first was privacy, and the second is the definition of a general intangible, which was a severe limitation on the negotiability of Bitcoin. And we had Drew Hinkes and Andreas walk us through the amendments, what they were, but could you explain some of the misconceptions that you're seeing? regarding them in the discourse today? Yeah. So the discourse today mostly focuses on the definition of money and then two effects that are read into the definition of money. So in the UCC, the and for, our, for the purpose of the discussion and the amendments, the term money is defined really in two places. One in Article 1, which is general provisions. So that definition applies throughout the UCC, not just in Article 9, which is about secured transactions. But then there's a separate definition of money in Article 9, which is used specifically in the context of secured transactions. And the definition of money in 1201 is still the same. So it is originally, here, let me find the right language real quick. So the current definition in 1201 just says a medium of exchange currently authorized or adopted by a domestic or foreign government, right? Then that language stays. So the definition has not been expanded to include anything new. So one misconception is that the definition is being expanded to include central bank digital currencies. That's not true. Under that definition, the it already covers both you know, cash money, paper money, and electronic money to the extent that electronic money has been authorized or adopted by domestic or foreign government. That means Currently, current UCC law covers the sand dollar and the Marshall Island sovereign because they're both central bank digital currencies adopted as a medium of exchange by a foreign government. So that's one misconception is that the amendments change that. And now after the amendments, central bank digital currency would be money. That's not true. Right now, under existing UCC rules, central bank digital currency is money. What it does do, what the amendments do achieve is they add one sentence that says that medium of exchange adopted by a foreign, an electronic record that is a medium of exchange that is adopted by a, a, a government, not just a foreign government, by a government that existed before they adopted it is not money. So what that means, and people are right in interpreting that to mean that things like Bitcoin as adopted by El Salvador and the Central African Republic does not fit the definition of money under 1201. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, one two, the, that definition of 1201 is used throughout the UCC. And there, I think it's like over 200 times that a variation on the word money is used in the UCC. And in many instances, it would not make sense and it would not work well with the rule for money to include Bitcoin. And in many instances, like in the sense of commercial paper, the cryptocurrency community probably doesn't want Bitcoin to be money, right? You don't, we don't necessarily want it to be reintegrated with the bank system. So that's one reason that it's excluded. On that point, so when you say we don't want it to be integrated, what would be some of the risks if Bitcoin was to be considered within that definition? So there's really not many risks from 1201. It's just it is like it doesn't make sense, right? But when you get that's when we get to article nine, right? So then there's the article nine definition of money. And if it's not, which relies on the 1201 definition, and the article nine definition of money is used for how do I explain? So in in 
Article 9, the purpose of definitions of types of assets so is so that when you lend against those assets, you know how to do what we call perfection, right? You know how to perfect in your security interest. So to back up a bit, a security interest is an interest in property contingent on non-payment of a debt. So if I enter into a loan agreement with you and to secure that loan, you take an interest in my desk, right? Then the question becomes, so then there are rules for ensuring our agreement, our contract is enforceable between the two of us, right? And it's quite normal for contracts to be enforceable between the two parties that are contracting. What is not quite normal is for the contract to be enforceable against third parties as well, right? That's very odd for contracts. It's quite extraordinary, really. And because a security agreement is the kind of contract that creates a property right that can affect third parties, then the UCC Article 9 requires you to take, you the lender, to take another step, which we call perfection, which is basically to tell the world that we have this agreement so that they know if they come along and they want to take a security interest in my desk, that they know there's a pre-existing interest. And the goal of that is to give you, the lender, what we call priority, namely first access in line to the desk in order to get the value from the desk if I default so that you can satisfy the obligation. The only way to do that is to perfect. And the way to know how to perfect the security interest in the desk is to know what kind of UCC asset the desk is. Depending on what kind of UCC asset the collateral is, the desk in this case, then that changes the way that you perfect the security interest. And so the definition of money in Article 9 serves the very, very limited purpose of telling us how to perfect a security interest in money. That's all it does. It doesn't force anyone to use a certain kind of money. It doesn't prohibit the use of a certain kind of money. In fact, the UCC, because it is private law, cannot force or prohibit anyone from doing anything. It's all voluntary opt-in and you can opt out. The UCC provides default rules the same way that the general partnership provides default rules. And you can change, you can opt out of most of them, right? And the one example is if you want to perfect your security interest, you have to do it in the w- whatever way the Article 9 says to do it. So in Article 9, the money can only be perfected by possession. And in commercial law, com- possession is a tangible concept. So they, the concept is like cash, dollar bills that you can hold in your hand. It's impossible to perfect by possession intangible things. And so the UCC Article 9 creates a variety of functionally equivalent things to possession called control. And those and control can mean different, have different definitions for different intangible assets. And in the so in the amendments, when because electronic money cannot be perfected by possession, the amendments set aside electronic money and say it's not money. Money's still perfected by possession, as always. But electronic money, you could perfect in two ways. One, the same way you could already perfect the sand dollar, for example, if it's an account-based CBDC, you can perfect it by controlling the deposit account that it sits in, right? So the sand dollar, you have to get through an authorized financial institution. Ostensibly, that means it's a liability against the bank or the central bank of the Bahamas. And that's just like a deposit account you control in the account, the deposit account. If, however, it's a token-based CBDC like the Sovereign, 
then the amendments create a new method of control because there is no method of control. There is no method of perfection for that other than the general and tangible one, right? And so it creates a method of perfection called control and says you could control that by holding it in your wallet because it's a more decentralized CBDC. Separately, because the 1201 definition carves Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that exist adopted by a government out of the definition of money, that means Bitcoin gets treatment as a controllable electronic record. This is very good because the rules applicable to controllable electronic record are better than the ones for money and electronic money. They provide clearer perfection rules. It provides free transferability for the cryptocurrency and generally provides the more clear, more robust set of commercial transaction rules for secured transactions in that type of cryptocurrency. So that's a long way to answer the question. But the the to get back to the what's the risk if Bitcoin is in the definition of money? If Bitcoin is in the definition of money so that it's electronic money in Article 9, or if, as has been suggested out in the world, we get rid of the concept of electronic money, that would mean Bitcoin, it maybe is money because of the way that it's the definition is defined. Although there's a strong argument that a court wouldn't accept that as reality. And instead, it would be a general intangible. In either case, it's bad. If it's money, it gets the only way to perfect it is then through a deposit account, right? And that means re-centralizing Bitcoin into third-party intermediaries, which is not what anybody wants. Or if it's a general intangible, we're still where we are with all cryptocurrency right now, which is that you have to file a financing statement. And then whenever you take cryptocurrency, so if you were to send me cryptocurrency, I should search in the Article 9 filing system to see if you have if there's an encumbrance on that cryptocurrency, because I'm going to have a hard time knowing if you or anyone before you had given a security interest in it. So it's hard to know whether I have full title, full good title to that cryptocurrency if you have to file to perfect. That's the long-winded answer. But the risk ultimately is if cryptocurrency is not a controllable electronic record, it gets bad like rules that are not as good not, and perhaps objectively bad. So the rules for money aren't very strong in, on purpose. The reason being that government that issues the money usually sets the rules for commercial transactions in money. And so it's not the place of a state law like the UCC to try and set that regime. That's not something that it does, not something that it tries to do. And so it's just very minimal rules for money. So if Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are money, they get very few not so good rules and the only and the only real way to perfect in them well is to re-centralize them either into a bank account a deposit account or into something like a custodian that opts into the securities intermediate securities regime under article 8 so you'd have to put it in coinbase and have coinbase opt into article 8 for it to work well i don't know if all that all makes sense but that's the risk. Thank you for that. It, it seems like there is quite a few misconceptions regarding that. And based on your answer there and my understanding is these amendments are creating clarity in a, prop, a way to perfect an interest in an intangible asset like Bitcoin in a way that was previously unavailable. So from a commercial perspective, all it really does is now allow you to borrow or lend or secure a loan against something like Bitcoin. Yep. So there's really two objections floating out around there. One is that people would love to see Bitcoin be defined as money, right? To be treated as money. And although I understand the impulse because it's a medium of exchange, you want to be able to transact in it like money. 
In my view, calling it money is not as important as being able to give it money-like attributes. And in this instance, the money-like attributes of free transferability and negotiability and being able to use it well as a collateral is achieved by calling it a CER, right? And that doesn't bother me philosophically that we call it a CER and not money, as long as it gets the legal effects of being like money, which is what happens, right? So all the things people want, even the people making the objections, the things they want, these rules achieve. They, it's just hard to, I mean, and legit, it's thick, right? It's, it's not super clear immediately. And so it, it takes a minute. The other objection is the idea that somehow defining electronic money will encourage the introduction of a U.S. CBDC. And to be clear, and I have to, I should have said at the outset, I am speaking to you today in my personal capacity. I am not speaking in or as a representative of the Uniform Law Commission or the ALI. I'm not a commissioner. I'm not a member of the ALI. My posts there are purely research at all and sort of like minute in their scope. But that being said, I, in my personal capacity, I'm not a fan of central bank digital currencies and I have no plans to use them ever, right? So if in fact the UCC amendments did encourage the introduction of a CBDC in the United States, I would not be defending them. It's not something I wouldn't be touching it with a 10 foot pole. But that's just simply not the role of the UCC. The UCC is private law. As I said, it offers default rules. Predominantly what it does is offer default rules that enable private parties who choose to enter into certain covered transactions, rules that they can rely on as a starting point so that they have predictability in transactions across state borders and sort of so that it's routinized and that you have the same rules applied to the same transactions over and over. That's what the UCC does. It doesn't have the power to ban anything and it doesn't have the power to introduce a new form of currency into the United States. It's not, can't do that. Thank you for clarifying that. And some of those comments about the introduction of a CBDC based on these amendments, I thought, wow, I really don't understand how the US works if something like this is possible through a private law reform that can be voluntarily adopted by the states. I also heard some things regarding privacy, which didn't make much sense for me as well, because this is an opt-in regime, right? You would only have to register if you're borrowing against your Bitcoin. Yeah. And so that objection actually is one of the things that led to the reform in the first place. So what's interesting is the reason there were the project exists is because industry members came and asked for new rules, right? It's not like a bunch of us professors are sitting around thinking like, oh, how can we change the UCC, right? But rather industry members said like, these things aren't working for us. And the one thing that wasn't working was that cryptocurrencies are general intangibles and you have to file to perfect. And The objection, although it's largely philosophical, I see where they're coming from. And the objection was, if I have to file against general intangibles, I have to give my customer's name and their address and the secured party's address. And I have to list the asset that I am taking the security interest in. And they said, even if the lender themselves didn't quite agree with the loss of privacy or the limitations on privacy. And my debtor wants more privacy than that. My customer is asking for more privacy than that. And if the customer is asking for more privacy than they are. And the truth is in deposit account context, we don't require filing in part for that kind of a reason, right? It's a control of the deposit account via contract is often the way 
that it's achieved and through a deposit account control agreement. So the thought was, well, let's figure out what kind of control we could envision for a perfection mechanism for cryptocurrencies. And that's what the amendment does. The amendments offer control defined in a new way as a method of perfection so that they industry members don't have to file financing statements against their debtors. And it offers the customers what they wanted, which was greater privacy in their transactions. Yeah, it definitely solves many issues. So what will be the next steps then? What does this look like going forward to see adoption? What do you expect to be the most likely outcome? So the UCC is the joint project between the Uniform Law Commission and the ALI, the American Law Institute. And they so they jointly developed the amendments and each organization had to separately approve them to be the official text. And so that happened in July, 2022. And now the states are free to adopt them if they choose to adopt them, right? No state is required to adopt amendments, but certainly the goal of the uniform commercial code is that it would be uniform. So the more uniformity, the better for commercial, for par- for the private parties conducting these transactions. But it's really, it's a state by state process at this point. And we've already seen that start, which is what's led to much of this discussion. And as to predicting the outcome, I have no idea. If you had asked me, you know, like, two weeks ago, I would say, oh, it'd be fine. Yeah, but lots of stuff has happened since then. So I think we just have to wait and see. I want to talk about your papers. And I'd love to go all the way back to 2016. And I believe this was the first paper you had authored on crypto. And it was called Moving Beyond Bitcoin to an Endogenous Theory of Decentralized Technology Regulation, an initial proposal. And the article argues that an endogenous regulatory approach offers an avenue for alleviating obstacles while still providing sufficient tools for government oversight. In particular, it proposes regulation that is endogenous at two levels. So first, through an iterative cooperative process involving both regulators and industry actors, which sounds fantastic. And second, that is implemented as regulation through code, that is regulation written into code itself. And the reason partially that I wanted to highlight this is We're seeing many people talk about this in particularly the DeFi context as the benefits of this industry. So could you describe at a high level what your paper, what the article was about, and then we could get into some more nuances around that. Yeah, first, I'm so embarrassed by that title. It's the worst title of a paper ever. Okay, so setting that aside, and I should say I pretty much don't write my own titles anymore of papers because I'm terrible at writing titles, but that's fine. You'll note as we go through, the titles get shorter and shorter, more to the point, but anyway. Anyway, it's a terrible title. But so yeah, the paper was in fact my first paper. It was like one of those things I was thinking about. And it was one of those things I'd been thinking about and wanted to write, but clients wouldn't pay for. And it really came out of a deep frustration with regulators and the regulatory practice for my clients where I felt like we were talking different languages and they just could not seem to understand the products and services. The regulators just didn't understand the technology and it felt like you were just beating your head against the wall. And so that frustration seeped into the paper and that's where the suggestion about the endogenous theory of regulation comes. And that is part of something that carries throughout my work, I think, even still, is that I think because lawmakers and regulators simply do not understand this stuff, by and large, there's a few exceptions, right? But by and large, people just don't understand and they don't have time to be fair That's not that their job isn't to come up to speed on every new technology. They can't. They don't have time for that. But 
because of that and that limitation, I really think that co-regulatory approach, which would be another way to say an endogenous regulatory approach would be quite helpful where it's like you read an iterative process. So over and over until you get it right, understanding that nothing's quite final until you find something that works and understanding that the technology develops and new products and service develops. And you're going to have to change. Like if you make very clear certain rules, it's probably going to be needed to adjust over time, right? So it's going to have to be iterative over and over. And I think it has to be done in connection with the folks who are building the technology, who are using the technology and building the infrastructure. Otherwise, we're just going to end up with rules that don't make sense. I think the UCC has been a great example of that because there have been, I think it's like over 300 observers to the project. So that's what I was, an observer, which basically meant I sent them an email and was like, hey, I want to volunteer be careful what you wish for. But um, anybody could do that. And there were a lot of folks from cryptocurrency industry and the ecosystem who contributed their time and comments and thoughts to the way the rules would work for their businesses. And that was key in getting it and getting good rules out of the process. Because otherwise, like they, we just people don't have time to learn everything, right? It can't be, it's hard to be an expert in commercial law and be an expert in blockchain technology uh, at the deep technological level. So that's why the co-regulatory piece, because I think it's hard to get it right without that dialogue. Now, the objection there is regulatory capture, right? If you work hand in hand with industry, what about regulatory capture? How do we know we're ending up with good rules and not just whatever rules they want? Okay. And that's fair too, but that's in part why it's an iterative process. So you would, you wouldn't, want whatever the rule is to be set in stone forever. You'd want to be able to audit how it's working and revise over time. But it's also why I think my thoughts have been modified a little bit on the regulation through code piece. In that paper, I talk about two different applications of regulating through code, one in the public law space and one in the private law space. And I've come to determine that I think the public law, like using blockchain technology as regulatory technology in the public law space, mm, I don't know if I love that idea as much as I did back then. I still love it in the private law space because really it's just performance of contracts through technological right. means. And that makes tons of sense. But the public law space, I think you have to be very careful about it. So people have raised concerns about, and the example in the paper was anti-money laundering rules. And at the time, there was a decentralized proposal to include anti-money laundering compliance in the protocol. And it was quite a divisive proposal. But the point was, people were thinking about it in the, at the technology level. I just think in light of particularly a new law proposed in, I want to say, I think it's Illinois, but I get the ones that start with I, I think it's Illinois where the it's, if you don't comply, we're going to fine you like a bunch of money every day or something until you change it and they can't change it. So you just have to be very careful in that approach because you can get that very wrong as well. So if I had to write it over, I would have been a little bit more cautious on the public law side, but the private law side, I stand by and I built such a system in a different paper later. So Yeah, and before we jump to another paper, I think this idea of working together hand in hand between regulators and industry members is so important. And you mentioned the 2022 amendments and how those were such a good example of this. Why do you think that was possible in the 2022 amendments? And why haven't we seen something like that from securities regulators? Hmm. 
I think it's the difference between public law and private law. So the UCC is supposed to respond to commercial practice and it has since like that's what commercial law does. The law merchant was the law as developed by merchants, right? So it's just part of what the commercial law, private law development is about. And I think the practice of having observers at the Uniform Law Commission is in general, right, you can be an observer on any of their projects. That's just the way that organization works and everything's public on their website, right? It's just, that's how it rolls. And they think they have good policy rationale for that. It's going to be hard to convince states, you know, to think about adopting a uniform law if they never got a chance to have any input into it. And so in order to make it something that's useful to as many people as possible, you need as much input as possible from everyone. Mm -hmm. And that's just sort of the ethos of the way it's developed. At the securities law side, I don't think that's ever been the way that it's been developed. And so, and I think that has to do with it being a public law regulatory arm of the law where their job as they see it is to manage the market, to protect the market from market participants, bad acts. And like, why would they rely on you to tell them what's good and bad, right? They feel like they need to be the judge of that for the market's sake. I think it's just a different approach to the two areas of law. Yeah. And I think there is room for the public law to take more of that approach. I believe in the late 1990s, they took that approach when it came to ATSs, the alternative trading systems, where they had public comment and they gave industry members a voice from a securities regulatory perspective. And maybe it was just because they didn't understand the way the technology worked at all and they needed a way to do that. Now, I can't really say if it turned out the way the industry wanted. Yeah. And it's surprising to me that we haven't seen something like that in the US. But I could see even just the perception of the industry as well is such an important role where if you're the SEC and you're saying, well, it's the same as everything else, the same rules apply, but then all of a sudden you begin stakeholder discussions that could go against this image that you're trying to portray. Yeah. I also think there's been a movement in the last years to bring it in house. So there's the new labs that were developed in the securities and commodities context where they're trying to bring the technology expertise in-house to show that they have it. And yet it's not clear that the same, that there's an understanding of like the products that are actually going to market, even if you do understand the technology. So I don't think it's that there, I don't know. I think you're right. There is definitely room for consultation on the technology, how it works. And certainly the products that are being brought to market, I just think on the public law side at this point, there's a lot of distrust between the agencies and industry. And I'm not sure, like, it would be good to open a dialogue. But the concern would be if I was a member of industry, like, how are you going to use what I say later, right? There's so much distrust that it's not clear how effective that dialogue would be really. Yeah, being willing to engage with a regulator who could use that in a, who could use what you tell them in an enforcement action in six months, I think is a net negative for the regulators, frankly, and projects aren't comfortable to disclose what they're doing due to the risks rather than, you know, if you say come in and register rather than come in and speak to us and let's figure out a way to move this forward without hanging an enforcement action over their head will lead to much more candid discussions and much better rulemaking for everybody involved. I wanted to touch on your 2017 paper and you're right, the titles did get quite shorter. This was distributed governance. And what I liked is the argument that there are 
are opportunities for distributed ledger technologies, so blockchains and related technologies to solve unique corporate governance problems, but they're not a be-all and end-all. And there are important lessons throughout history that we can learn. And I think we're seeing them throughout the ICO stage, the NFTs, DAOs. Every aspect of this industry has taught us lessons that we've already learned. What are some of those lessons that came to mind that maybe you mentioned in the paper or things that you think we've seen that represent mistakes we could learn from? So this is an oldie too. I haven't thought about this paper in a long time. I will say, so at the outset, I'll say this paper was a product of a collaboration with Benjamin Edwards, who's at UNLV School of Law and Nissan Packin, who's at CUNY Law School. And at the time, so I didn't have a tenure track job yet. And so at the time, this was them bringing me uh, sort of under their wing and like showing me the ropes of the publication process, which I am forever grateful for. But, you know, it was really a paper to sort of stake the claim that there was a role, that there was, in fact, a role for blockchain to play in corporate governance and for corporate governance to play in certain organizational matters in even if they were built through code and the blockchain ecosystem. And that some of the questions would be traditional questions and some of them might not be. And that is a theme that I have carried with me for the rest of my scholarship and that I teach actively in class, which is, and it's broader, I think, just than blockchain technology. But I tend to think that emerging technology is like a magic mirror. So stay with me here. But if you hold emerging technology up to the law. Yes, we can ask questions about how law applies to the technology, how corporate governance, for example, can rectify certain gaps, perhaps, in governance of organizations built using emerging technology, but also emerging technology will reflect back to us gaps in existing law, right? So because you have to think about how the law applies in unique ways, given the technology, it may reveal gaps that are actually there, not just with respect to the technology, but like in general and ways that we should be thinking about reforming, say, corporate governance for all companies, not just companies in the blockchain ecosystem or decentralized ones. And that has been something that I carry with me in all my research, not just in the blockchain side, but I do some work in artificial intelligence too. And it's the same thing there. The technology can teach us things that we haven't noticed or we've taken for granted as just parts of the legal system that don't have to be that way. And that could be better if we thought about it. Right. And even looking through history, the legal system evolved in a very reactive manner where you look at disclosure regimes that came after the 33 Act, where there were problems that happened and rules were in place to make sure those problems don't happen again. And then the investment contract test was sort of enumerated. And we've just seen these tests and rules evolve over time to meet whatever the learning was from a certain experience. Given the background there and the work you've done, are there areas where you're predominantly excited to see the potential proliferation of a distributed ledger technology when it comes to corporate governance? Yeah, so I talk about it a lot more in autonomous business reality paper and a bit in corporate personhood, but I think that corporate governance could be much flatter. And I think that the ways that decentralized autonomous organizations, for example, can, some don't, but some do experiment with flatter governance structures and sort of challenge the model of what profit-seeking behavior should or could look like, what maybe even the point of economic 
production is, right? Those like foundational concepts are being challenged in the decentralized ecosystem. And I think that's very important because it teaches us not just that there are, you know, different ways to organize economic production that we haven't used because we didn't have the technology to do it, but it reminds us that the corporation and other business entities are a form of technology, right? The corporate law is a, a tool. It's all technology. It's a tool to help us organize productively for economic purposes. And maybe those tools are changing. And maybe the new developments mean the old tools need to change a little bit too. And that I think is quite exciting. There are organizations in the blockchain ecosystem that are adopting things that look a lot like corporate governance reforms that scholars have been proposing for a very long time that regular corporations just haven't bothered to adopt, right? They're like, nah, we don't need that really, you crazy law professor, right? And, but these organizations, there's like, we're trying to figure out what works best and we're not bound by old conceptions of corporate organization or corporate production. And so let's just experiment. And it's cool to see sort of the parallel between like, well, this idea of more representative management of an organization is what is happening in this DAO, for example. Those kinds of reforms to see how they play out for reals, whereas before they've been, you know, sort of thought experiments, like we think this could help and then to see if it actually does or not. Then simultaneously things like FTX happen and you're like, we just need like basic, we just need you, we just need you to follow basic corporate governance rules. It would have helped a lot, right? Just the basic ones. So I think it's still the whole spectrum. There is a place for traditional rules, but there's also a place for just experimenting with stuff that people have thought would be would work well for a long time and traditional corporations couldn't be incentivized to bother with. Are there any examples that come to mind of governance structures when you mention that professors and scholars have been emphasizing or espousing as potential solutions, but haven't been adopted in the traditional corporate form, but are being tested out in a crypto native manner? Yeah. So um, there are suggestions like having shareholder representation in management. There are suggestions like having management be more representative of the demographics of shareholders, for example. There's examples of sort of stakeholderism, right? Managerial stakeholderism, where the point of the economic production isn't just to pursue profit for maximize profit for the shareholders, but rather to account for a variety of stakeholders and their interests in running the organization. And all of those things you can see being experimented with in the decentralized autonomous organization space. Like the shareholder participation in management in particular, I think you see even in things like you know, sort of proof of stake based organizations, just the basic mechanism of how the the protocol works. But yeah, I think those in particular you see reflected in DAOs. I also think you see more radical experiments with using an organization to experiment with new forms of incentivizing art production, for example, where you're just trying to reimagine the way people finance the creation of art, the way people appreciate the arts uh, versus something that is more traditionally economically productive. And there's so many different paths we could go down from there, especially to me, it seems like if you think back throughout history, why did a board of directors make sense? Well, because you had all these 
different shareholders who might have been located in different countries, didn't have the accessibility to communicate freely with each other. So it was much easier to elect an individual or delegate that responsibility to certain people. And we've seen delegated staking, delegated voting when it comes to DAOs as well exist, but you also have that ability to now publicly release whatever proposal is happening and then communicate with these shareholders in a way that was never before possible. And I think part of the excitement personally for me is now we can find solutions. Like you said, it's not a one size fits all, but there are reasons that things developed. And now if we can undermine those with a better solution that works in a much more equitable way for everybody. It's such a win-win. You wrote an article in 2019 titled Uncorporate Crypto Governance. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned how blockchain protocols followed the path of early internet governance. Mm -hmm. And I think researching history for crypto is so important because you can learn from mistakes when it came to the railroads, when it came to the internet. I really like how you made this point, though. If architects of blockchain protocols are not careful, they'll suffer a similar fate to the internet. Increasing governmental control, greater centralization, and decreasing privacy. And Chris Dixon has wrote a lot about Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3. And a big promise of Web 3 is to get away from this centralized model to improve transparency, improve privacy, improve stakeholder access. Could you describe this article and and what it touched on and some key points that it makes? Yeah, so this article was in part my response to the argument that software developers and in particular core developers should be have fiduciary duties. I think that's nonsense. And so this was in part a response to that. But it takes the approach that like, look, even if I disagree with it, I can see how that argument will and could be persuasive to regulators. And how if the blockchain ecosystem doesn't take a move to protect itself, that it could be possible that fiduciary duties are imposed that way. And then not only that, that other regulatory moves would be made that don't make sense really for the way the technology works and the way and really doesn't uphold the values of the folks in the ecosystem and really right recognizing that each protocol and each community around the protocol may have different values that they reflect in the technology the paper argues that it could be useful to create governance contracts essentially that look like something lawyers and regulators would expect them to look like. So a lot of people read the paper and thought I was making the argument that protocols need to conform to corporate governance. And that is not what I was saying. What I was saying is that there might be use in constructing a contract that kind of looks like corporate governance, but that um, insofar as it details, right, the roles and responsibilities of participants in the ecosystem, So that you can say when someone comes along and says, look, I think these people are fiduciaries and I think those people are, you know, liable for whatever, you know, maybe it's the miners have to screen for certain transactions, right? Where, and if they don't, we're going to find them a la Illinois. I think that kind of thing could be avoided if you could show that the community thought about those things and entered into a contract to privately organize themselves, right? They're just like a corporation. That's what a corporation is doing. That's what a, and that it's called uncorporate governance to show that like use it, but like don't be a corporation. That's not what I'm saying, but use the concepts, use the tools of the corporation or of an LLC, right? To organize your affairs in ways that's recognizable to regulators to say, Hey, look, stop. We've already thought about this. And here's where we came out via contract. 
And then the, in particular, with regard to the fiduciary duty piece, the, it's likely that a contract could combat an argument about imposing fiduciary duties sort of ab initio quite well, right? Because that's a, that's a very rare step to just be like, here, you have a fiduciary duty. I don't know why, but because you do. That's super uncommon. So if you had a contract that thought about those things ahead of time, it might be a way to combat the. So it's another example, I think, of this co-regulatory idea from the beginning, which is just to take control of the kind of framework, governance framework that you want, but to think about it in legal terms as well. So when the law comes along and looks at you, they're not like, what is that? And instead they can you know, see something they recognize and maybe defer to it a little bit. And I think that's a point many people often miss in that it's easy to fly under the radar given just the scope of all the innovation in the space. You can get away with that for a certain amount of time, but what will eventually be the result is that if something happens where there is harm to particular investors or groups of people, a duty will be imposed, some regulation will be imposed. Maybe it's not a regulation that applies after the fact, but going forward, that could have a huge chilling effect. And unless you get ahead of that, someone else will impose it for you. There's no law that says I need to do this, but there is law that could impose something after the fact, which could be quite damaging and you might like a lot less. A la Ukidao. <laughs> I mean, that. so yeah. they're like, we're nothing. Yes, you are. You did nothing. So you're a general partnership. You should have adopted right. a governance contract. Like I said, you should. And then you could have avoided some of it. But anyway, yeah. In a case like that, Carla, how would a governance contract hypothetically work in the case of something like Ukidao. So that's sort of where Rockefeller or Coder comes in. So if you can create a business structure that is recognized by contract, which a trust, a business trust often is. So at common law, it is a business entity that is created by contract. A lot of states adopted statutes that modify that slightly, but at base, it's still a contract-based entity. Then it's not a general partnership and it changes liability questions. It So this allegation that if you just voted then to on the changes to the protocol, now you're liable for violations of the Commodities Exchange Act, right? You could That could have been mitigated, for example, by having a clear governance structure. Uh, so too, perhaps, could the questions about how you serve the DAO, right? Which I think was fascinating that there was so much argument about that when like, clearly it's a general partnership. Like, if you do nothing and you pursue a profit, two or more people pursue a profit, that's a general partnership. But people seem to forget about the general partnership. I actually think a colleague and I are going to work on a paper called that the forgotten general partnership because people seem to forget that there's a thing that is that. But anyway, I mean, that's the idea is that you could mitigate certain risks like the service questions that came up and because there would be cl clearer rules if it was a recognizable business entity for how to serve affect service and you would have limited your liability so the accusation and that you just voted and that's violation of the commodities exchange act would would be mitigated as well that's kind of the idea and I loved the paper, If Rockefeller Were a Coder, and I thought it would be helpful for you to explain what Rockefeller did. Could you share that story about what happened in the 19th century with Rockefeller and what the impetus was for him turning to the common law business trust as a substitute business entity? Yeah, so back in the day, like way back in the day, starting with the, you know, England, right? So when they, the corporations that were authorized were often around the ships and for ex exploration and each 
the sovereign would have to authorize each expedition and they would incorporate the expedition. So the corporation was the expedition. It usually was just that one expedition. So if by some miracle you got to come back and you didn't die on the way, right? If by some miracle you got to come back, the next time you wanted to conduct an exploration, you had to get a new authorization for a new incorporation of the ship and of the trip. And so then when the colonies were created and then later the early states, that same method of incorporation of companies was adopted where corporate charters were issued by the state directly and sort of individually on a case-by-case basis. And the law said essentially that the states could wipe out the charter if they wanted to and cross-border transactions by corporations were quite limited. And so the corporation wasn't a great vehicle for Rockefeller who was working very hard to integrate across state lines and obviously across industries in order to expand and make more efficient the standard oil, what was the standard oil company. Because the corporation wasn't a great vehicle for that, he turned to the business trust and people would invest in the business trust and in return they'd get business trust certificates which acted as essentially their shares and they created a essentially a corporation just by contract instead and it allowed them to avoid the limitations a of like having their charter yanked out from underneath them and b the helped them avoid the limitations on cross-border transactions and to grow sort of much larger than any other corporation of the time. And so the Standard Oil Trust, though, because it got so big and so powerful, ultimately created is the reason we have antitrust law, right? Literally antitrust, anti-Rockefeller trust. Mm-hmm. And so it was you know, broken up essentially. And then directly after the whole thing, like realizing what had driven his move to use the business trust, that's when we get the general incorporation statutes that we have now, which make it much more easy to uh, incorporate, but also harder for the state to just, you know, yank the corporate charter back later. So that's the general story. It, It was impossible for him to achieve the business model that he wanted using the corporate form of his time. And so he turned to the business trust, which was a common law business entity formed by contract in order to achieve the business purpose that he wanted. And in your paper, you posit that if he was building a blockchain-based business today, he would take the same approach. So the idea there is, and it's not true for every blockchain-based business, but many blockchain-based businesses don't fit well in the corporate structure. And they also maybe, like, it's very common for now states to amend their LLC laws to be DAO-friendly. But they might not fit well into the LLC structure either. Just because they have a flatter governance structure doesn't mean they have to be an LLC, right? There's also a movement to think about unincorporated nonprofit associations. But the proponents of that proposal, and they're not wrong, suggest that'd be a great mechanism for protocol DAOs, right? But maybe not for other kinds of DAOs because it's a nonprofit (laughs) association. So to the extent you're pursuing profit, that also might not work. And then I make the argument in the paper that if it can't, if the more formal entities, the corporation and the LLC don't work well, then the thing that's left is the general partnership. And I talk about how that doesn't really fit 
well either, particularly at the protocol DAO level. But in many other instances, a la Uki DAO, it also doesn't make much sense to treat participants in a DAO as partners because they don't have the same level of activity and decision making as partners do. And so I argue a more appropriate alternative would be the business trust. But in order to do that, the participants have to take active steps to structure it that way, a la governance contracts, right? It's sort of just an ongoing like one stream of consciousness across all of the papers but yeah and in the paper i thought you did such a great job explaining how or using the example of bitcoin as a potential business trust and the nodes as trustee the one question that i had would be how that initial trust would be created what is that sort of the genesis block for the trust and what period of time would that happen with respect to something like bitcoin yeah so when i say in the paper that i actually don't because bitcoin and other existing cryptocurrencies sort of depending on how far along they are but like bitcoin and ether for example because they're so far along it'd be very hard to like roll it back and make it work now. But if at the time Bitcoin was released in the first instance, then that would have been the time to organize it as such. So I think it's much easier to do when you first create the protocol. And then, you know, you still have a window of time in the early days. But I think at this point, the ship has sailed for those. I think Bitcoin's probably fine. I think, you know, given recent statements by Gensler, if there's stuff that Ethereum could do to further protect itself, like it might want to take those steps. This isn't legal advice, but I'm just saying in theory, there, you know, there might be reason now to want to take additional steps to protect itself, a la governance contracts. And who in the case, you know, just say Bitcoin was just starting out or there was a new, you know, Bitcoin 2.0 with Satoshi's 2.0. What would that look like? Like, How would Satoshi, who's created, published this white paper, how would they go about building, taking the initial steps to build a business trust? So, you know, so I should say there is one business trust, you know, Dash is a business trust. It's in New Zealand, not in the U.S., but Dash is a business trust. And they transitioned. They figured out how to go. They took their existing governance mechanism and turned it into a business trust that respect and it worked just like I said it would they were able to respect their existing governance structure using the trust so it has happened they did it in New Zealand though I think because the law is clearer than the U.S. because not all states adopted the statute and so and you know it's not clear necessarily if you do a common law one like what the effect is in the states that have the statute blah 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 so anyway so it's in there but Dash is a business trust that owns a Delaware general corporation that employs the core developers, which I think is like the a, a kind of a genius way to protect their core developers from the fiduciary duty argument, because at that point, they're just employees. And to the extent they have fiduciary duties, it's the normal agency duties of an employee to the general corporation. But anyway, so you can, it can be done midstream, I think, if you're careful. But that worked because they could vote on it, right? Because it's proof of stake. And so they could show a vote to to reform as a business trust. But in Bitcoin land, if it was back in the beginning when Satoshi is developing the protocol, and it's the same question I got for just governance contracts broadly, like how would you do the contract? When would people agree to it? Well, every protocol comes with a license, right? And so when you download the software, there is a license, usually, you know, a very non-restrictive copyright license, but that's the same place you could include governance contract and basically treat it like click wrap. Like you can either, 
join the organization on these terms or not. And then as you wanted to amend the terms, you vote the same way you vote on upgrading the software on amendments to the governance contracts. That's how I think I would do it if I was starting from the beginning is just include the contract as part of the core software download. And then, yeah, because in my view, the the nodes are the trust certificate holders. And so they would be the ones that would need to agree to the contract, right? They would be the shareholders, right? So they would need to... The nodes or the token holders? Oh, the token holders, sorry. The nodes would be the trustees, yeah, the token trustees. holders would be yep. the... Yeah, okay. but anyway, you would need both in that case, because you're right, that is what I say. You'd need the trustees to agree to be trustees because they would be taking on fiduciary duties, right? But you could limit them to be clear to all of you listening. I'm not saying you should impose full penalty of fiduciary duties. Please understand that fiduciary duties in business law are often carved out and limited and usually, right, not that big of a, a stick, an enforcement stick. But because they need to agree to that, I think they do have to adopt the contract. But then so too do the token holders. And so the bigger question in my mind is how do you disseminate the contract to the token holders? because not everybody in interacts uses Bitcoin by using Bitcoin Core. So how do I make sure they agree to the contract? The easy one is for the nodes to adopt it, but I'm not sure how you get the token holders to adopt it, which is where I was going with the thought. But Right. Yeah. It's hard to have a notice for them whenever Bitcoin is purchased on an exchange or something. I mean, there probably is ways to do it, but it would be complicated and it would just add another layer of complexity. Although I don't think... I think if you buy it on exchange, actually, it's just the exchange that has to agree because technically they're the ones that hold it, right? Because right. they're holding it for you. Right. If you buy it from someone, say, for cash, yeah. then it would be different, right? Where they're just sending it to your wallet. That's a good point. The, you mentioned this project in New Zealand. Was it, it was called Dash? Yeah, the Dash protocol is the one that and I don't know that they are in New Zealand, but their business trust is organized in New Zealand. And then it owns the a general a Delaware General Corporation that employs the core developers. That is very cool. I will be doing some research into that. Thank you, Carla. Last question for you and thanks for taking so much time by the way. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's a two-parter. So it's sort of my sneaky last question, but asking too. It touches on habits and advice. And I find we are what we do every day and our habits make up a big portion and it's easy to fall into bad ones and good ones. So are there any habits that have helped you cultivate a successful career? Things that you try to do regularly, could be following curiosity, learning more about Bitcoin, buying Bitcoin. Is there anything that comes to mind to you in terms of habits? Oh, no, I think I have a lot of really bad habits, honestly. I think maybe good habits is, yeah, I don't know. So I, no, I don't have any advice whatsoever. I think of myself as having a lot of bad habits, but I basically write about, and it's funny. So as a professor, we have to have a research agenda, right? And it's supposed to be, I don't know if I should say this out loud, but it's supposed to be all scholarly or whatever. If I could actually just say what my research agenda is out loud, it is that I write about things that are either fun, interesting, or that make me mad, right? And so if you're passionate about the topic, then you're more likely to follow through on the project to see it to completion and to do good work. So maybe that's a good habit, but I don't really think of it that way. I just think of it as making it so that I can enjoy my job. But it's also not like the most scholarly of ways to pick your projects. So I don't know if I'm doing it right or not, but 
that's the the motto fun interesting or it made me mad and there's i think that's a good approach and it is a good example of something i think that's so ingrained in you that it is you don't even think of it as a habit it's the way you operate the last question is with regards to advice and is there any advice you were given perhaps when you're at perkins cooey or prior to that, or as a professor, that has shaped who you have become, or that comes to mind even when I mention the question as something that really stands out and that you think listeners would benefit from, or that you personally benefited from? Or in the alternative, it could be advice that you wish you had gotten, or you would give yourself looking back. I think advice that I would have given myself looking back, or that something a friend and I talk about quite frequently is to not limit yourself so to not be afraid to go for opportunities even if you think that it might be you know a reach or a stretch because when you do you might miss out on your calling almost so for example the only reason I'm a law professor is because my best friend like flew to Seattle and came and sat in my kitchen and over ice cream convinced me that I could that I was good enough, that I had a shot, right? But otherwise, I probably never would have even applied. If she hadn't come out and said, like, don't limit yourself, you know, you at least owe it to yourself to try, I wouldn't have this job. So I think that is something I wish I had learned earlier or had been, had the courage to understand earlier. Yeah, I think that'd be it. That's a great one and a great spot to end it, to, to not be afraid to do things that you might not be qualified for. Yeah. Well, thank you, Carla. Thank you for joining the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time and all the work you do in the space, the great writing. I know you are working on paper to come, so I will keep an eye on that in the future. And I'll link the papers we mentioned in the show notes below. Is there anything else you'd want to touch on before we go? No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed my time, which for the morning, that says a lot. I'm usually a pretty grumpy person in the morning. So thanks very much for having me. It's been great. Thank you, Carla. 